that point where you have to leave the operating room and tell the parents that their child's going to die, they might have only just met their child a day earlier or two days earlier when they were born. And then this guy that they've just met walks into the room and says, you know that story you wrote about your child's life where they, they were going to do all these things and be an astronaut or be a deep sea diver or be a pilot and there was going to be a happy story and they were going to give you grandchildren and life was going to be wonderful and you've written that story you wrote that story while you were pregnant with that baby and now i'm this guy you've just met and i'm going to walk into the room and i'm going to take that storybook and i'm going to wrap it up and now we have to write a new story and you've got no idea what the ending's going to be and it might not be a happy ending but you have to trust me Craig McBride is a paediatric surgeon. He operates in a specialty that has no margin for error. It is work that demands inhuman attention to detail and a resilience that a few can sustain. And today, on The Risk Equation, our conversation is about dealing with the weight of that, every day and thriving. But building a person that can meet that necessary excellence is not accidental, and it requires failure. Today we start our conversation with Craig at a point that could have marked the end of his surgical career before it even began. The point at which he sat one of the most difficult barrier exams ever devised, the surgical primary. On one side of it, a career as a surgeon. On the other, what might have been. In the end, I decided that I had to sit it, even though I felt underprepared. Otherwise, if I didn't sit now, I would never sit. I would always think that I hadn't, I hadn't prepared enough. And I figured that, or I reasoned that if I sat, even if I failed, that would be the, the kick that I needed to um, move me on and study harder to eventually pass it. I remember when I was driving to the surgical primary, um, my dad was kind enough to drop me off because I didn't really feel in a state that I wanted to be operating a car or mucking around with car parks or not. And then of course, um, you know, you have to go to some executive building in the middle of the city, so parking's always a hassle. And uh, I remember sitting in the car with him and, and saying, uh, I just don't know if I'm going to get through this one, Dad. I, I really don't. I, I've only failed one exam in my life that was intermediate French and I felt bad enough about this. I think this is going to be the second. And uh, I remember him, him saying to me, don't have a question in your mind, Chris. I know you'll get through this. It won't be a problem. And it's just that sort of certainty of parenthood where you're allowed to put all rationality to one side and just reassure without reserve uh, something that really doesn't, you don't have any right to say is going to be the case. I wonder what, I wonder what your parents would say if they were surgeons or one of your parents was a surgeon and they actually knew how hard the primary was. I wonder if they'd say the same thing. That, um, that, that confidence of parenthood or that... G up, chap, you'll be fine. As you've invested a lot of time into this and you've gotten through that, that first exam and haven't managed to get over the hurdle, was there a point at which you thought to yourself, maybe I do need to think about changing now? Maybe this is the time that I've reached this point, I couldn't get through it, I've tried twice, now it's time to attempt something else? Or was that always never on the cards? <laughs> Well, I, it, it was never on the cards because I think there's definitely a, an expectation that comes on you 
that if you've made your decision and hung your flag, as it were, and said, I want, I'm going to be a surgeon, to then walk away from that, in some senses, that's seen as you weren't a surgeon because you couldn't, you couldn't be one, rather than because you chose not to be one. I had decided that I would continue until I had passed the primary, so that if I did choose to walk away, I would be walking away because I chose to walk away, not because I failed the primary. I failed the primary twice, and the first time I failed it because I was underprepared, and the second time I failed it because I remembered failing the first time. And I probably knew enough to pass, but I psyched myself out by virtue of the nature of the exam. The third time I sat the primary in a, in a funny kind of way, it meaned a little bit less because I had, I hadn't, I didn't have the same certainty about surgery or I didn't have the same um, emotional desire to be a surgeon. So the, the, the objective the third time was a little bit different. The objective behind sitting the exam the third time was so that if or when I chose to walk away from surgery, as you say, it was on my terms. And that was the time that I passed the exam. Then I had to question everything again. about saying if I'm going to decide to do something it's going to be on my terms you know I don't want some external body to tell me what I can and can't do I want to make that decision myself and it's also about just putting a drawing a line in the sand about what your self-worth is isn't it you know you're, you're saying to me I'm good enough to do this it's just a question of effort not a question of capability and I know I can put in the effort it's just going to take longer I think that for most junior doctors coming through the unit they're very surprised to hear that you sat the primaries twice but it also provides them with a great deal of reassurance that it is exactly that, just a barrier exam, but not necessarily a reflection of how capable a surgeon you're going to be. Um, and that it requires a specific technique to get through it, but that's not a judgment on how good you are. And that's something that people struggle with, I think, with exams, is it becomes a surrogate marker for how good of a doctor you are or how good of a surgeon you're going to be or how capable you are. Um, do you still see it that way or do you see other things as being markers now, having gone through that experience yourself of failing that exam a couple of times. I think that I think the primary is a the primary is a knowledge exam, not an application of knowledge exam. And so there's a basic level of knowledge that you need as a surgeon, but you also need to be able to demonstrate a little bit of stubbornness and a little bit of willingness to work hard because it's a hard career. And the exam tests that as much as it tests anything else. And then those higher order thinking aspects of surgery, decision-making, knowing when to operate, knowing when not to operate, recognizing that the person that's in front of you, they, they will suffer as a consequence of that decision. Starting off at a very low level with a pure knowledge exam seems appropriate, but it's also a little marker that the career that is surgery or the life that is surgery is hard and it, it occupies a lot of time. One of the things that's always fascinated me as a junior doctor moving into a registrar position in surgery is that time when you're asked to take the reins independently. You don't have anyone more senior there holding your hand. You don't have anyone senior even in the room casting an eye to make you feel more comfortable that they'd say something if there was an issue. You have to take that responsibility for starting the procedure, working through any problems, 
bringing the patient through safely and making sure that everyone in the team is working together toward that goal and then take responsibility for the outcome uh, of what happens after that as well. Do you remember the first time that you had to independently do a more complex procedure like an appendicectomy or a lap coli? The ones where, I guess for the people who aren't uh, surgically minded, the the procedures which fully represent, I suppose, uh, an operation uh, in its purest sense. I do remember my first operating list and I had to take the first patient back to theatre because it was a Uh, an elderly man having a circumcision and then he unfortunately started bleeding again in the recovery everything's time pressured so you don't have a lot of time to sit down and consider the evidence and weigh the options and there's two types of thinking there's intuitive and deliberate and most people will resort to intuitive and hope that it's right because you simply don't have time for deliberate the advantage is that it's quick and the disadvantage is that it's not always right (laughs) I had to go down, I had to see him, I had to apologise to him and then had to take him back to theatre and then having done that, then move on with the rest of the list. And I remember thinking there was quite a jump between doing a single operation, you get the patient in the theatre, get the theatre moving, do the operation and then you can have a, a break versus doing a list where you have to deal with that operation and then immediately move on to the next operation, having to take that aspect of care and the the issues that have happened from it and then in a sense put that to one side so you can then immediately move on to the next thing. What strategies did you have to do that? Was that something that was built into you uh, or was that something you were taught or was that something you had to learn how to compartmentalise in that way? I think you learn it. There's this thing that people talk about in surgery that surgeons are aloof and they're arrogant. And as a surgeon, there is a a degree of a barrier that you have to place between you and your patient so that you can remain dispassionate because if emotion becomes part of the equation, significant emotion becomes part of the equation, then it may cloud your judgment. You can't, by the same token, be an automaton. You can't have no emotion about what's going on because then, then you're uncaring and unfeeling. So there's a real tension there between caring enough but not too much. I think we do build systems to offload emotional burden. So my role as the surgeon, correctly or incorrectly, is to be effectively the sea of calm in the activity that's going on around you. If people talk about the last thing you can do as a surgeon is you, you can't lose your shit when everyone's losing theirs. That's kind of what we're trained for to be able to take a chaotic, uncertain situation and then make some sort of order out of it. I've been to a few car accidents. That's a very unsettling place to be for me because I don't, I don't have the systems that I'm used to around me. I've been lucky I'm a paediatric surgeon, so by definition I work in big hospitals with lots of experts around that can be called on in the moment's notice. And so I don't have to worry about the initial trauma response because I know that if I go down to the trauma room, I'm going to have a whole bunch of emergency physicians who are trained not just in emergency medicine, but in pediatric emergency medicine. I don't have to devote that brain space to a whole lot of that situation. But if, if, if I'm on the side of the road, you're off your ground. 
you're fighting in foreign country. Those touchstones that we all rely on aren't there. So you then suddenly you have to improvise with stuff that you're not used to improvising with. It occupies more brain space and you, you can't concentrate as much of your brain space on the task at hand. My grandfather was an orthopaedic surgeon. He was a, um, a part of the PA hospital team that went to Vietnam uh, to operate over there as sort of a part of the war effort, I suppose they called for civilian surgeons to help out. And he did that, and, and later on in his life, he was at Port Arthur when the massacres occurred. He was there in the Broad Arrow Cafe with uh, one of his friends, Clem Windsor, who was a general surgeon. And I remember him saying at one point in time that all of the trauma that he'd seen as an orthopaedic consultant in Vietnam or in the operating theatres in the PA hospital, none of it compared to what he saw in the Broad Arrow Cafe. And he was saying that in some ways it was easier to compartmentalise the trauma in an operating theatre because everything is sterile and prepped and draped and there's a control to it. There's a sort of a structure to it. But when the carnage was completely unstructured and chaotic, it hit a more emotional place for him than he'd ever experienced in the past. And I do wonder whether or not the structures that we put up in the hospital in some ways assist the necessary compartmentalization of that sort of trauma that we deal with every day because if you're dealing with someone who's you know the example you gave out was a, a post-operative bleeding patient but there are far more severe cases that the people would probably not be aware of where like I can think for example I was assisting on a case and a lady had come in with a newly diagnosed colorectal cancer and a colorectal surgeon happened to be on so we took her to theater that night to do a, a hemicolectomy for her and while we were doing the laparoscopic hemicolectomy, she had a, a profuse bleed from her middle colic artery. And we had to convert within seconds into an open laparotomy and deliver the bowel and gain control of that vessel. And it was very interesting as a very junior doctor without a huge amount of surgical experience to see how quickly um, things had to escalate, but then also how fast those plan Bs, if you described it, were initiated. Within the moment that we started to get blood filling up the screen, the surgeon had notified the anaesthetist that we had significant hemorrhage and immediately there was blood called for to the theatre and I think it would have been within about 30 or 40 seconds someone had run to the blood bank and gotten blood started running on the patient. The suction had been transitioned from a yanker uh, to a much larger uh, sucker to try and clear the area that was going to be operated on by the scrub nurse who'd immediately recognised that different equipment was going to be required and we'd gone from a laparoscopic kit to an open laparotomy tray within a matter of probably 20 or 30 seconds as well. And then all of the equipment that was necessary then to deal with that situation open was simultaneously initiated uh, while myself as the assistant and the surgeon uh, proceeded to open up and, and he gained control of the bleeding in that circumstance. everyone in the team at that point in time, not just the surgeon, was thinking about what the plan B and C was going to be. Um, it was automatic that once that trigger word had been uttered, that everyone was moving through that process. And in some ways it was very reassuring to me going through that process to know that everyone was thinking in that way. And it was a bit of a wake up call to me to say, hey, look, you can't just sit by, you know, like this isn't just a passive experience anymore when you're assisting, you need to be thinking about well, what's my role in this? What's my plan B as the assistant? You know, how am I going to be retracting? How am I going to be exposing the field so that 
what needs to be done can be done? How am I not going to get in the way, you know, from making things worse than they would otherwise be? And, and that fundamentally changed the way that I approached my engagement with the surgical process from that experience. And I, I don't know if everyone can point to one instance necessarily, but for me, it really was that one that really made me think about those things that you talked about. The, the trick is not how you get out of trouble it's how you stay out of trouble and so the obvious examples of what you're talking about are when something big starts bleeding a lot i remember um, i remember a couple i remember watching one so i in a sim similar situation to yours we would we would ligating a patent ductus arteriosus so that's a that's a vessel that passes between the aorta and the pulmonary artery. So those are the two biggest arteries in your body. And if that bleeds, it bleeds a lot and it bleeds from both ends. And in a small baby, that baby can bleed out in a matter of seconds. There's almost no comeback from that. And I've seen a PDA let go during an operation. So you, you've, got, you've got no access to control those vessels. And a, one of the finest surgeons that I've ever worked with, he was ligating the PDA and then he got some sudden bleeding from, from behind it. And, and you know you're in trouble. You were talking about there's that word that alerts the entire team that something's happening. And it's often a swear word uttered from the surgeon's mouth. And, and he was, so he swore and he put his finger in and stopped the bleeding. And then in a very calm voice, asked for a series of sutures and asked me to, adjust my view so that I could, so that he could see better and then just said, okay, I'm going to take my finger out. I want you to put your finger exactly where mine is and then I need to get ready and we're going to put a stitch in. And he was talking with the anesthetists and saying, we're in, we're in deep trouble here. If, if I can't get control of this, we've got control now, but it's only temporary. So when I count to three, take your finger out. Three, two, one took my finger out and a whole lot of blood came up and this hand reached in with a suture on it and fired something in and I've no idea how or where. I think he was just taking a gamble that it was in the right place based on his memory of the view that he had and it stopped bleeding. <laughs> and afterwards I said, well, what would you have done if that hadn't worked? And he said, I don't know. I didn't have any plan B. <laughs> and that's, that's when I started thinking about plan A and plan B. But the, but the real key is, is to predict what's coming. So I had a child that went to theatre a little while ago last year with a huge amount of blood inside his abdomen. And we could, see, we could see his abdomen visibly distending in front of us. So I raced down to the theatre and said, look, this is what's coming. We haven't got time to muck around. And senior most nurse, get scrubbed. This is all the kit that I think I'm going to need. And when I said I need 50 packs, they thought I was joking. And they looked at my face and thought, oh, okay, he's not. And so then the theatre started moving really, really quickly. You can, you can yell and kick and scream, but that, that doesn't get people moving any faster, I don't think. 50 packs, for those who don't know, is essentially the sponges that you're going to be using to absorb blood to try and clear a field or prevent hemorrhage as a temporising measure. Uh, in a, a situation in which you have a lot that you need to deal with. 50 in a child is a very large number. So this child had a circulating blood volume of about four litres. When I opened the abdomen, the blood splashed on the floor. 
So that's the first time I've ever heard bleeding. And at the end of the operation, we conservatively estimated that we that we had nine liters of blood in our suckers or in the packs. So we'd he had a total blood volume inside his abdomen and we replaced it before we got control of the bleeding. There's a book that I'm sure you probably have come across called Top Knife uh, that was written by a couple of South African trauma surgeons um, who essentially the thrust of the book is that they were tired of overly academic books about trauma writing and they just wanted to write something that was simple and that would work in the field for people who are in a similar situation. And it's very to the point and it doesn't muck around with a lot of complexity. In fact, it talks about some techniques that they say just simply aren't feasible in real life at all, but look good on paper. And it's interesting reading their thoughts about the way that they think about trauma management and critical care management in a rapidly deteriorating patient. And one of the things that they advocate for is about doing simple things really, really well, as opposed to trying to do complex things to be heroic. And I'm interested as well that a lot of the things that you're talking about are quite simple interventions, but as you're illustrating, have been applied successfully in some of the most dire circumstances imaginable. The idea of having a plan B, the idea of relying on the team, the idea of having systems in place to free up cognitive load so that you can focus on the most important tasks and not the least important tasks when it's required. All of these things aren't particularly complicated, but cumulatively and applied diligently can deal with hearing blood falling on the floor and nine litres worth of loss in a child. Um, that's a pretty extraordinary endorsement of simple actions in my view. There are all sorts of U-butte techniques that people talk about, but the reality of paediatric surgery is that we have a huge breadth of what we do. And so there's an enormous number of operations that we don't do very often. I don't do trauma laparotomies very often. I can, I would do one every couple of years. And I've, I've only done one in 10 years or 12 years as a consultant with that much bleeding. Um, but it, there, there are systems and there are, there are approaches to that that make life very simple. Make a big hole, suck all the blood out, pack the bleeding, and then let the anaesthetist catch up and then come back and find where the bleeding is and stop it. A lot of this risk mitigation and systematic approach, I wonder whether or not some of that had come from your life before medicine as well. Many people who, uh, who now know you as a surgeon probably don't know that you used to do deep wreck diving. And for those who don't understand the significance of that, deep wreck diving is one of the more dangerous forms of diving that you can do. There's any number of hazards that you can get into when you're in the middle of a ship down below 18 metres, tangles, disorientation, things falling on you, one-way passageways. There are a lot of risks. Do you want to talk us through about how you got into that sort of uh, work or sport and how you approached that there's a bunch of stuff that most people do when they're young that they prefer their parents not to find out about um, <laughs> and sometimes they find out and sometimes they don't and and it's usually with mates whether you survive those things or not is partly luck partly your friends and partly the systems that are built around it I, I did some silly things when I was younger and some dangerous things when I was younger and I was lucky I had a bunch of people around me who I was friends with who 
who thought in a similar way. So we had things that we did that seemed very adventurous. So, you know, it's not normal to get in a lilo and scoot down a dam, um, for example. It's not normal to do a penetration dive into a sunken Russian cruise liner. A lot of the stuff that we had done up until then was the dives where if you got into trouble, you could just hit UBC and then you would shoot up. But you can't do that if you're cave diving or wreck diving. You have to be a bit more careful because there's rough surfaces. Finding a straight path in and a straight path out rather than just kind of wandering around a ship underwater, that's a recipe for trouble. Everything's on its side and you can't see very much. Once, once you've been down, everything gets disturbed quite quickly. I think risk is attractive to everyone when they're a teenager because you, you're invincible, right? Nothing can ever go wrong and you'll be right. Um, some surgical registrars are like that. They, they're very happy to take on risk because they're not the one that wears it. It's the patient that wears it. I've thought about this a great deal because my dad was an airline pilot and he was in plenty of situations that were very critical situations, engines exploding, um, situations that you sort of prepare for once in your career and he had them happen to him multiple times by pure chance but it, it, it meant he was in a situation where he'd had to face the realities of the significance of a crashing aeroplane or the potential for it in the face a number of times and I remember asking him about the way that he thought about risk relative to the way that it involves me in my career now because I'm very interested in how pilots who deal with that situation approach it and one of the differences that he highlighted, which I thought was really interesting and I hadn't really thought about before, was that when you're a pilot and these things are happening, your life is on the line as well. So you, you have a fairly strong incentive to be as prepared and as good as you possibly can be to deal with that situation. Whereas in the operating theatre, that's not the case. You know, your life is not on the line, you know, and the consequences for the patient are equally uh, damaging, but, but the consequences for you are definitely not. And does that change the way that we approach things? I like to think not, but I just wonder whether it does. I think it can. I don't think it should. They're both time-pressured environments. So you're talking about making decisions when the plane's falling out of the sky versus making decisions when the patient's trying to bleed to death. Surgical training tries to discuss deliberate actions and consider the evidence and weigh the evidence about various ways of approaching situations. There's a thing that surgeons do in, when they sit in the coffee room and they trade war stories. And, and what they're actually doing is talking people through their own actions, their intuitive decisions, because they're usually time pressured situations. And then afterwards, when you unpack it, you can be a bit more deliberate and you can ask yourself, well, did I do the right thing? Were my decisions based in the best current evidence? And therefore, if I'm in the same situation again, would I do it the same way next time? And the best people to talk to about that are other surgeons because they get it, they've been there, they've done that. Those stories are important, but you're right, the surgeon doesn't have skin in the game like, a, like an airline pilot does. So you have to be able to have empathy for what's going on you need to be, to some extent, 
disinterested, but not uninterested. So you need to maintain a sense of dispassion or be dispassionate, but not completely divorced from the reality of what's going on with that family. And more so in pediatric surgery than anything, because you're dealing with not just a patient, but you're dealing with their family. That point where you have to leave the operating room and tell the parents that their child's going to die. They might have only just met their child a day earlier or two days earlier when they were born. And then this guy that they've just met walks into the room and says, Hi, I'm, I'm the surgeon. You know that story you wrote about your child's life where they, they were going to do all these things and be an astronaut or be a deep sea diver or be a pilot. And there was going to be a happy story and they were going to give you grandchildren and life was going to be wonderful. And you've written that story. You wrote that story while you were pregnant with that baby. And now I'm this guy you've just met and I'm going to walk into the room and I'm going to take that storybook and I'm going to wrap it up. to write a new story and you've got no idea what the ending's going to be and it might not be a happy ending but you have to trust me because right now the thing that's standing between your child and dying is our surgeon and then we go to theatre and it doesn't always work It's a staggering amount of faith, isn't it, that someone's placing in us. It's extraordinary because for some of the things that we deal with, as you know, the child looks fine. They look like there's nothing going on. But suddenly, you know, as I say, someone that they've never met walks in. One of the tough things in surgery is trying to convey a sense of realism without being overly optimistic or overly pessimistic, painting those potential scenarios that don't appear to be totally futile. Because then parents are just, they must be going through all kinds of hell while we're operating. And then when you walk out, that, they're watching to see what, what does that surgeon's face look like? So you almost have to compose yourself before you walk out of the room so that you can talk to them because they're, they're watching to see if you're going to smile or if you're going to shake your head. There was a time when you were having those conversations where you didn't have a family. Like me at the moment, I don't have any kids. But now you do. Has that changed the way that you've approached those conversations? Totally. You understand more. The thought of my children getting sick or my children having an operation that they might not survive, it totally changes it. It bypasses your... Um, those little barriers that people carefully construct, or in my case, it does, it bypasses them and just cuts straight to your heart. So you understand a little bit more what parents are going through. I haven't been in that situation, so I don't understand totally what they're going through. But I can, I can get a little bit more of an insight. I can see a few more chapters into that story. Um, so it does change you. It's very disarming. Um, you don't have to be a parent to be a paediatric surgeon and you don't have to be a parent to be a good paediatric surgeon. 
but in my case it 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 changed the way that i thought about it it made it more real and it makes it more in my case it it was important beforehand and it seemed more important and i and i started thinking much more than i had previously about what parents were going through and so taking more time to talk to parents around their child's operation When I think about these things, it always raises in my mind the question of sustainability. Uh, I love what I do, and I love doing this job. And I, I look at the cost of those conversations cumulatively over the years, and I wonder what effect is that going to have on me when I'm 60, you know, and I'm getting toward the end of my career. What is going to be the cost in terms of carrying that burden or that weight or the cumulative effect of those moments over time? And in some ways, I feel like it's it's a special type of burden because in in many cases with trauma it's it's a time limited thing for people whether it's in a conflict earlier in their life or it's a car accident or it's something that has happened they experience it and it they carry it with them for the rest of their lives but it's a once and that's it whereas in the hospital it's a cumulative burden over an entire career and that's a different thing and i wonder now looking back with some distance over your career and, and what's to come how you wrestle with that and how you've seen that impact you whether it slices away slowly at your humanity. I've learned ways of delivering information that seem to work. So stories that parents can understand. And I find myself sometimes using those same stories almost word for word. And then I, and then I wonder, am I using that because it's easy or am I using it because it's a good way of conveying the information? So periodically I change the stories because I'm not sure, but I wonder if, it, if it's meaningless and so is it coming across as more of a script rather than a surgeon trying to convey some information to them? I don't, I don't know if it wears away at your humanity. I think it could. But I've, I've met surgeons who deal with equally traumatic situations, traumatic in the sense of emotionally traumatic, and they seem to maintain their humanity and maintain their drive, maintain their energy. I think the more you do it, the easier it gets because unfortunately you get practice and experience at it. The challenge is to, to like going right back to the beginning of the conversation, to not let it get too real or too unreal. I don't know if it wears away. I think you look at the way the hospital works, you think about the hospital over this COVID era, people are more on edge, they're more worried. They're more worried about their life as well as their work. And you have to be careful about that because it can wear away at the system and then the system can start to wear away at you. The hospital has to have a built-in resilience in and of itself. And there's only so much petrol in that tank, I think. And so time away is important, but equally preparation is important because it doesn't drain the petrol tank quite so quite so fast. So the question of sustainability is one I suppose that's more in vogue now than it has been in many years in surgical training and medicine more more broadly. And there's interesting costs in that in surgical training. And I think one of the one of the reprises that we tend to hear a lot now is sort of junior trainees or junior doctors in surgery uh, is that by definition uh, we're not working as hard as our seniors used to. 
or that our experience is less. Uh, the number of cases that we're getting to do is smaller. And there's a number of reasons for that, structural reasons that really are independent of the quality of the person that you're dealing with. Uh, there's limits now to the laws in which you're allowed to work certain hours. Um, the nature of rostering that necessitates that impacts on the number of cases that you have. The structure of how you get into surgical training and the numbers of people who are applying uh, dictate that it's now taking longer to get more senior positions and therefore higher grade exposure. There's a number of different reasons why things have changed over the years. But I'm interested in whether or not you think that these changes are going to lead to a more sustainable workforce or a workforce more able to cope with those sorts of emotional stresses or uh, physical stresses over time. Or do you think really that that's not the answer, that, that there are other things that allow that, that are independent of working hours or the rapidity with which you reach a senior point? I think it's going to change the workforce. I don't know how that change will be viewed historically whether it will be seen as a change for better or for worse. Operating after 80 hours when you're really, really tired, that's not a good place to do an operation. But there are some advantages that people don't like to talk about. One of the advantages is, is that you had to sort things out. You couldn't leave it till five o'clock and then it ceased to become your problem and you could hand it over. In a sense, you had to train yourself to sort things out quickly, efficiently and properly because you couldn't hand it over to anyone. It was still your problem. Now the hospital looks after the patient. And so you hand it over to someone else. So that person is fresher. So that's an advantage. But the information that, that you have acquired about that patient, you then have to transmit. And, and we're not very good at that. We write a lot of stuff in the hospital record, but I'm not sure how many people read it um, because I'm used to carrying more patients in my head. So I'm, I, I know what their blood tests are on and, and I know what their family structure is and I know that dad has to get back to the farm in a few days time or, or mum is running out of babysitters for the other children. So that all those layers that go around the patient, that, that the 80 hour weeks and the 100 hour weeks are, are not acceptable anymore. And they weren't much fun when we were doing them. I'm not sure that 40 hours is okay because if you have a 40 hour week then you need at least four or you need at least five doctors to be looking after that patient all week. If you have an 80 hour week you just need two <laughs> but they're going to be tired. <laughs> The limits that there are on ours now mean that you don't get the same amount of experience in the same amount of time. We, the profession, needs to find better, smarter ways of getting people to the same sort of experience. I gained that experience by operating on lots and lots of people and being around the hospital a lot and seeing a lot. And seeing some of that stuff when I was tired and seeing some of that stuff in the middle of the night when I was on my own. And that was terrifying. And I am fairly sure that I did some poor operations when I was relatively junior that I wouldn't let my junior people that are working for me and with me now, I wouldn't let them loose on their own to do those operations. I would come into theatre and help them.
in previous areas, surgeons taught themselves some operations, but now yourself and your colleagues, we're, we're there a lot more than I remember my seniors being there. And so maybe we can teach you more efficient because we can shortcut all of the bad habits and teach you good habits rather than having to teach yourself and then teach yourself out of the bad habits that you've learnt by not having someone else around to teach you. So there are other there are other ways of of going about it, but it's going to change the profession. Um, whether that, as I say, whether that change historically will be for the good or not remains to be seen. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Risk Equation podcast. I'm grateful to Dr. McBride for taking the time to join me and for sharing some of his incredible stories and insight. But before we end today's show, I just wanted to thank those of you who have reviewed and liked the podcast on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It really means a lot. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd be so appreciative if you left a review. Doing so really helps the podcast to grow and allows others to discover the show and join the community. So once again, thank you for listening and for your continued support.